everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. If there's ever been a sector that's benefited from the pandemic, it has been the food sector, specifically restaurant deliveries and grocery deliveries. And this new demand for especially grocery deliveries has given rise to Q-commerce, the next frontier in e-commerce. Q-commerce stands for quick commerce, and vendors in this space specialize in bringing small quantities of goods to customers almost instantly when they need them. According to a recent article in TechCrunch, there are 10 companies in Europe competing in this space, more than half of which did not exist 18 months ago. And these companies together have raised a total of $2 billion in funding to date, with several raising mega funds in each of their rounds. My guest today is the co-founder of Glovo, Sasha Michaud. Glovo was founded in 2015 in Barcelona and since then has grown rapidly, delivering over 100 million annual orders and operating in 23 countries. Join me as I talk to Sasha to find out more about what Glovo is doing to build a sustainable company in this hyper-growth environment. Welcome, Sasha. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. So, Sasha, let's start at the beginning. You didn't actually start as a quick commerce grocery delivery company. You initially started a restaurant food delivery company in Barcelona. Talk to me a little bit about those early days of how you started and what you did then, and maybe reflect on what you did then that laid a strong foundation for growth later. Yeah, well, actually, if we go right back to the beginning, we, we, we actually did start as multi-category. In fact, our first version of the app was a simple text box. You download the app and you'd, you'd, you'd basically write what you wanted us to pick up and buy and, and where you wanted us to do it. And we'd go and do that. And our you know, our initial thoughts of, of the company were more related to an Uber of things. Uber, you know, they were, they were moving people around the city. And we thought it would be great to have a, you know, an on-demand app that you could get anything in your city and get it delivered. So we actually did start as multi-category. What happened, to our surprise, because we thought the food delivery, onla- online sort of food delivery or even phone-based food delivery was already, was already quite large, that there would be a lot more interest in other things. But, but what happened is actually our, our customers apart from ordering anything, and they would, a large percentage was restaurant food. So we identified the opportunity said, look, people are looting three times a day. Also, the market's educated. They used to get food delivered from one way or another. So let's build a great UX with the best restaurants in the city and, and let's you know, focus growth in that area, but, but not leave aside multi-category. So when we launched the second version of the app, which had the categories in there and, and the restaurants and the stores and the menus and the offer. It was very focused to food, but we didn't leave the other segments. And, and you know, pharmacy is, is a massive 
category for us. Groceries has always been the second category after after restaurant food. M- more convenience focused than the full larger basket size that we used to order online. And then you know any retail store in the city would put themselves on the app and then maybe but restaurant food certainly drove and has driven growth. So what were you thinking would be your differentiator against the Ubers of the world? What were you thinking you would do differently that Uber wasn't doing or that you thought could help beat Uber? Well, I think primarily the multi-category in, in 2015 or today, you know, a pizza arriving in your house, nice and warm. And it's not wow moment. We've had pizzas delivered mm-hmm. for the last 30 years or more probably. Right. What's wow is when your baby's crying and you've run out of nappies at one in the morning and you get pick up an app and in 20 minutes you've got the nappies at home and it fixes the problem. Or when you forget your keys or your kids forget the keys coming home from school and you're at work and that stops you getting in your car and driving home at one of our you know couriers to go and deliver it. Or a wow moment is when you have an immediate need and, and you know we'll cover you. And that we believe was, was our differentiator. And it still is today. Mm. In fact, a large percentage of our orders and growing is actually QCommerce, what you mentioned. And quick commerce is pretty much anything for us that's not um, restaurant food delivery, which is what everyone else has been focused on. And it can be anything from groceries, obviously, which is our second largest category and fastest growing, but it's anything retail. So now we've got agreements with textile companies, H&M, our partner, FNAC, not with, with games, but also electronics. Mm-hmm. Electronics is super useful as well. I mean, imagine, you know, your charger doesn't work. Right. Now, the habit now, if your charger doesn't work, would be, well, I'll get on, you know, I'll get in the street, get on a car, get in, get in a cab and go and buy one. Well, now you don't yep. need to do that. You can stay where you are in 30 minutes, you've got your charger there. And pretty much at the same cost as you go and yourself. Interesting. So if you look at your revenues and growth, can you give me a sense of, what percentage is this quick commerce and what percentage is your general food delivery and, and also the, the growth that you're seeing in both of these segments or the different segments that you have? So I think there's, there's a couple of things here. A, it really depends on the region. So I'll give you, we're in, I'd say we're in three main regions. Southern Europe is where we launched and where we were born. You've got Eastern Europe, and um, that's from the Balkans all the way up to the ex-Soviet Union countries. And then you've got Africa, which is our newest bet and where we're in seven countries already. And I think it's very diverse. And we've got some countries that have over 40% Q-commerce. We have other countries that, that it's much lower. It's around 10, 15%. And also it depends on, on how we grow. So we're now in the phase of rolling out micro-fulfillment centers, we call them. Sometimes they're called dark stores, but we call them micro-fulfillment centers, which are basically... Stores not open to the public in cities where we can deliver convenience groceries super quick. So our growth also depends on how quickly we roll out those microphones and where we roll. And we're getting mm. very close to 100 already implemented worldwide. And that also focuses on, on how the, the growth is. So to answer your question, Q-commerce is depending on the region, but between 20 and 40% of our business. And the, obviously the fastest growing category. So it's it's going to gain more importance as we go along and hopefully be a majority very soon. The, the funding, et cetera, that's going into this is category is validating the demand. But, and I'll come back to that later, but obviously a lot of Q-commerce has been accelerated by the pandemic and people not wanting to go into stores, et cetera. And this convenience has become more important. But my question is, now that the pandemic is kind of tapering down, has 
the tapering down and people now being more mobile change that pattern of growth or in what segments of the market you're seeing this need for instant delivery? Or is it the same? Tell me a little bit about the consumer segments that are really fueling the growth for this Q-commerce. Well, the first question, no, absolutely. So obviously the pandemic, stores, restaurants being closed down, pretty much the only way to get goods was electronically, either through e-commerce or through companies like ourselves, which is immediate delivery on demand. Now we're now called Q-commerce. But what's happened is it's still growing. And why is it still growing? Because educating the market is very difficult. But what this pandemic has done as it made people who, who until now hadn't ordered anything apart from food to suddenly start ordering other things. And they've said, wow, this actually works. And it's not very expensive. You know, it's maybe one year or more, two years more. Why wouldn't I continue using it? Instead of getting in my car, driving across the street, going to that store where I know where it is, parking, going up three flights of stairs, buying it and going, and my time is worth more than one, two or three euros. And it's super useful every now and then. So this habit is becoming... And what all this funding is doing, specifically on convenience and fast groceries, is going to educate the market because they're investing in marketing. And what normally happens, and this has happened in so many industries, is there will be consolidation. There won't be 10 players in every market. There'll be one or two. And the the ones who do it well will be the ones who remain. And what the others would have done by all this marketing is educate the market. What we think internally is... Pretty much in Europe, at least, in, in other, other regions, there's been more. But we've pretty much been the only multi-category on-demand player. Our competitors generally have been companies like Uber Eats, Deliveroo in some markets, Delivery Hero. These are companies who have been primarily focused or exclusively focused on restaurant food delivery. And we've mm-hmm. been pretty much the only multi-category. So the on-demand multi-category, e-commerce, we probably have 100% market share of a very small market. What's going to happen in the future? This is going to grow 10, 100-fold. And maybe we'll have 40% market share of a much bigger market because there'll be other players. And I think that we just have to buckle down, give a great UX to our customers, great offer, great content, um, great service. Let's talk a little bit about your business itself. First, tell me, how do you meet this 10-minute delivery goal? How do you make that happen? There's, there's a couple of things key that are different to how we've operated till now is A, the microfilament centers, put them very close to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So a good example would be our home city where we launched global, you know, six years ago is Barcelona. We have five microfilament centers strategically positioned in the city, which would allow us to be very close to the consumer and, and have that distance because at the end of the day, the distance is obviously super important in time. You can't. And then the second is to change the way we work with our couriers who are much more dedicated to one single store. So they can go back and forth to the same store and be super optimal instead of the, the typical model, which would be we'd identify where courier was in the city and we'd handle him the best next order, which often might not, might have not been in the, in the zone of the city that he was previously. So I think those are the key elements that you really can offer a very speedy 10, 15 minute mm-hmm. service continually. And then on top of that, there's two parts of the UX of a of great user experience is the speed and the immediateness. And then the second one is what consumers want. You know, what are those 2000 yeah. convenience products that are adaptable and ideal for that market and that city. And it changes city per city and it certainly changes Mm -hmm. region per region and it definitely changes continent per continent. You know, in Lagos, they're not asking for the same things that they are in Kiev or Warsaw. What did you find surprising in terms of those skews in the different cities? Give me some examples. Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, access um, to drinkable water in Africa 
is a big problem even in bigger cities. I mean, that's a fact. So, I mean, there's a lot of things like that mm. that just are how people eat and that changes. And also the brands. People want certain brands. So, and we're a locally driven company. We give a lot of autonomy to our general managers in the region, in the countries. Mm-hmm. They know better. And their customers, they know better their the culture and everything. So we're a very horizontal company in the fact that headquarters doesn't dictate. I mean, they, they manage their own budgets and they decide where to focus. We decided that approach instead of centrally managed, which is viable. I've been companies where we've been very headquarter driven and they work very well as well. I don't think it's one is better than the other, but we decided as a company to really hire some local rock stars so they can run their business. It makes sense that what's going to determine one player over another is the speediness with which they can deliver and if they have the right things that the consumer wants, those skews per region, per geo. You're saying that your strategy is to basically hire really good people locally that understand what's needed and what those skews need to be, and then have a good system of getting couriers working for you. Before we get into the, the unit economics of that, I'm curious to understand, you know, the, the convenience stores that are there near me, What happens to those stores if you're going to be creating these dark stores that pretty much has the things that you would get in those convenience stores? Are they going to go out of business in a lot of these countries? No, actually, I think the last probably industry almost or commercial industry to digitalize has been the high street store because their business is based on location and people going in. And what COVID did is made them wake up. And by the way, it's also made governments wake up. So they're funding now. There's a lot of digitalization of SMEs. And I've always said this, that an SME or a high street store, albeit a small convenience store or or a small chain, has is a uniqueness that they're very close to the consumer. So if we look back at e-commerce and how it's eating in to to the way we buy things, the large e-commerce conglomerates, what they've been doing the last few years is actually getting products locally, taking them outside the city, Mm -hmm. storing them miles, thousands of miles away often from the consumer, and then sending them back. And they're waking up and they're saying, no, no, actually, consumers want the stuff much quicker. And now it's not enough to send it 48 hours or 24 hours. It needs to be the same day. And it's slowly moving to what we do and we're specialists is immediate. So that's why this quick Mm -hmm. commerce is going to be a very important segment of e-commerce. It's going to be, the, I I believe, the fastest growing segment in e-commerce. And I believe the local stores and our partners, because that's what we do, Mm -hmm. are, are uniquely ready to actually deliver stuff immediately. And I think there's a window of opportunity because the big e-commerce players are actually identifying this and they're moving moving closer and closer to the consumer. So what the retailers need to do, and we're working with them, obviously, because we work with, we've got over 100,000 partners and 90% of them are SMEs, by the way. What they need to do is realize their opportunity that actually being close to the consumer gives them a massive opportunity to be digital as well. And, and I honestly believe they should react very quickly because... You know, the, the e-commerce companies have identified this and they're moving very quickly. So... And are you also working with these small mom and pop shops, the convenience stores? 90% of our partners are small mom and pop stores, restaurants. I think it's now 20,000 20, partners we have worldwide. We work with large chains. They're very good partners of ours, both restaurant chains and stores. We work with Snack, for example, which is a, a large um, electronics, French electronics chain. We work with CNA recently, which is... Re- retail, textile, and obviously the the top restaurant chains. So they're an important part of our partnerships as well. And what we're also doing, because we do have a a B2B unit within, which is called Global Business, we do work as well as just delivery. So not delivering for the consumer, but delivering using our delivery network of couriers to actually deliver for other types of businesses 
And some of those are e-commerce where we'll do the last mile delivery, immediate delivery or on-demand delivery mm-hmm. for them. So we're, we're doing all three. But today our business is primarily focused on, on helping retailers and sell and sell immediately. Okay. From a consumer perspective, if I'm using Glovo to get on-demand delivery, are the prices that I'm getting same as the convenience store? Are they marked up beyond it? Generally, they're not. We don't control how our partners decide to do the pricing in, in our app. You know, at the end of the day, it's their, their store. But I'd estimate that 98%, just to give you a, a solid figure, of our partners do not mark up the price. They put, they put the standard price. We put it initial delivery fee on top, which can vary depending on various factors. It can depend on the average ticket size of that store. Distance, obviously, is super important. We decide the delivery fee to basically cover our costs and try and make a slight margin on top. An example is, you know, we have two revenue streams in per delivery. One is the commission we start charge the store or restaurant. That can vary depending on, on the segment, depending on the store, but between 10 and, and up to 30%. And we'll use that to to subsidize the delivery fee. And an example of a Southern European price would be probably per order, let's say the delivery costs to, to the courier was around five euros, five euros 50. We'd use the commission and the delivery fee to cover that cost and try and make a slight margin. And delivery fees can vary. Generally, it can go from one euro to, to three. Sometimes if it's a very long distance, um, could go up to four mm-hmm. euros or something. But generally, the standard is... And obviously, the lower the delivery fee the more orders that that store will have or store restaurant will have. Let's talk a little bit about profitability then. If you look at all the different cities where Glovo operates, how profitable are these cities? How do you determine, you know, what city you should continue in and which one you should close down? Okay, so so A, operationally, we're profitable in all regions. So that's important. That means, and that's what happens at at the beginning of the company journey, the quicker you grow, actually, the more money you lose because you're actually losing money per order. So it's a strange paradigm, isn't it? That, that actually, you don't want to grow too quickly because you actually burn all your cash. So it's quite funny. But actually, we're operationally profitable globally. So, so that means that the, the more we grow, the more benefits our PL. I think that's a very important position to be in. And then also, there's a mm-hmm. time scale. So when you launch a city or a country, you're not operationally profitable day one. Mm-hmm. And what we've done over time, now that we're the grand old age of six, six and a half, you build solid playbooks, right? You start learning from mistakes and you start improving how you launch a country in a city and you do it much better and you get to operational profitable much earlier because we've already done that. We've already hit the walls, already made those mistakes. We've already learned from them. And generally, you know, we'll, we'll try and be operationally profitable within six months. What typically determines profitability? What have you seen as factors or indicators that make a city profitable or not? It's- Probably two things. One is growth mm-hmm. uh, and then liquidity. We're, we're a three-pronged marketplace. We have the consumer. He's the one who wants something and he's the one who has the need. We have the courier. We call them blowers, which basically they, they're paid per job. But it's very important that they get enough jobs per hour to make a decent earnings per hour. Otherwise, they'll leave the platform, mm-hmm. right? It's not just enough giving them... So, you know, what I mentioned earlier, in Spain, it's not enough to give them one order per hour because they're only only five euros and that's not enough. You need to give them at yeah. least two orders per hour to, to get to that range of 10, 11 euros per hour, which is a decent income, and they won't look for another job. And to do that, you need a volume of orders. So that's growth. Give them liquidity. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole. And then, of course, with orders and with volume, you can attract the best partners because if you don't have enough volume, the key partners, local heroes, these mom and pop stores, 
are not going to make the effort mm. to join your platform because if you're not going to give them any orders, what's the point of wasting their time and wasting their effort? Yeah. So growth is the key one. And that generates liquidity in the three-pronged marketplace. And they all benefit from this, this liquidity. And then the other one, obviously, is competition. So, and, and I think it's healthy to have competition, but sometimes we've encountered competitors who alter the market by giving away everything free, crazy bonusing, massive discounts. And it's not healthy because with massive discounts or so that you can grow very quickly, but it's not bringing a solid customer. And obviously if they're all altering the market just by that, it's not a true sense. We try not to enter in those battles. We don't think it's healthy. Mm. And we're committed to bring on a quality customer who knows how our surface works, who knows more or less the cost based in it, and will continue with us many years and not giving freebies just to get on our platform. Interesting. So you're saying from a consumer perspective, you're trying to bring on the right customer. If I'm looking for this kind of convenience delivery, I'm just going to go with the one that gives me the quickest delivery and the cheapest price always. Right. And I'm happy to switch. I don't know that I have loyalty. How do you build that loyalty? Well, I think loyalty is built by trying to create an emotional connection with your customers. There's a number of examples that we can talk about who've done a great job of that. I think Apple is one. I mean, they create an emotional mm-hmm. connection with the, the, the user of an iPhone is a fan of an iPhone. And it doesn't matter what Android brings out, their iPhone. So it's not just about the quality of the product, it's creating an emotional connection with with the consumer. I think we've done that by being multi-category. I think we've done that by this wow moment, which I mentioned earlier, that we're not just bringing a hot pizza or we're maybe not just bringing your convenience mm. grocery needs. Actually, we're there to bring you pharmacy. We're there to save mm. you in emergencies that makes us wow. This company. And maybe it's only one of 10 orders that you make that does that wow moment, but that creates that emotional connection. And if you know our app, you'll see in the middle of the app, we have what we call buttons in the app, but in the middle, there's a big one called anything. And you you hmm. click that and and you can literally write whatever you want and put the address of the store and we'll go to any store in the city, not just our partners, and we'll go and buy that thing you need. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And it's only a small percentage yeah. of our orders, but it's hugely powerful because we not only work with our range of partners, these 100 plus thousand partners that we have active, we'll go to any store and we'll buy the product for you. Yeah. And then on top of that is we have to have a great service, a great UX. And that's doing that 10, 15, 20 minute delivery or whatever we're committed to super fast. Yep. That is equals our competitors or it's better than them, hopefully. Um, and number two, the, the products, get them at the right price, yep. but also the assortment, make sure they're what the consumer wants. If we do those three things, so great UX, great service, speedy service, getting the products you actually want on the app, plus an emotional engagement, I hope you know, we'll be in a good position to defend our, our place. <laughs> In a very, very competitive space. We're considered quite big in Spain and by our peers in Spain as, as you know, one of the largest scale-ups. But we're still tiny. I mean, we're competing in every single market against giants. Absolutely. And actually, you led me nicely into my second set of questions that I had around this very hyper-competitive space that Glovo operates in. So I know that Glovo just raised a massive round of funding, uh, $450 million. And another company that just started in 2020 reached unicorn status in nine months. What is justifying these huge amounts of capital being invested? I understand it's a growth segment, definitely triggered by the pandemic, but those are massive, massive mega rounds that I'm seeing across so many different companies. So 
A, what's justifying these huge amounts of capital being invested? And B, what will determine who wins in this market? The first one is the capital industry investors have identified on-demand commerce and specifically groceries as the next big thing. So they've seen what's happened over the last five, six, seven years with food delivery, moved up, massive growth. And they believe that groceries is going to be the next one. So I think that's where the interest is coming from the markets, where the funding is coming. Mm-hmm. Also, there's also a speed aspect to that. There's a belief that the first mover advantage, that the bigger the company, the, the land grab concept is valid mm-hmm. in this industry. I'm not so mm-hmm. sure. I've got a bit of doubts personally that it's it's not about land grab. You need to get the unit economics right. You need to get the operations right. It's really easy delivering groceries in 15 minutes. If you have 20 couriers sitting there, the moment the order comes in, you just send one and you've got 19 doing nothing, but you're paying them. That's not unit economics. That's not building a sustainable business. The key here is having those 20 couriers working, delivering optimally. And that's much more complex. So if you can throw money at the problem, but if you're not building the baseline, then you're not building a sustainable business and you'll hit trouble later on. The second question, how we're going to win the market. It's A, the wow moment, building that emotional connection with customers. We're not just a great service. We're not just great prices. We don't just have your product. Our competitors could probably do that. And I assume they will because they're probably going to be very good. So we need to build this connection and we need to be more than just a great service. We need to build something on top of that, which creates that, wow, I want to be with Global because there's this and this and this. Look, it sounds really good what you're saying, but I've been in companies where we're constantly seeing our competitors making different moves. And that can be quite distracting for Glovo, for your management. How do you keep the focus on your strategy and not get distracted? What are you doing to build for scale in this hyper growth environment? Not necessarily from what you've talked about, which is the strategy, but more operationally, how are you building for scale within the company in terms of hiring, decision-making, whatever else you think you're doing inside that's helping you to stay on track on your strategy? Well, we've done a few things well. And I think they've, first of all, the team, and that's the management team, but the team below, we still feel like we're the challenger. Like we still feel we're it's David against Goliath still. All our competitors are, are much well-funded, more access to capital. I think being born in Spain and Southern Europe, we've had less access to capital than maybe a US, Asian, a UK, a German company. They generally, the funding is a lot easier to have for those companies. And so we, there's mm-hmm. this feeling that we're the underdog still, mm-hmm. which obviously is super motivational. And the fact of being the underdog and having less capital and actually leading and we're pretty much leading in 20 of our 24 markets today, which says a lot for, for a tiny mm-hmm. company that we are. Um, and we're competing against giants in all those markets. So, so that really motivates the team. We're doing more with less. And then the vision of, of the company as well is that we really think we've got a long way to go. We're not looking for an exit. We're just at the beginning of this road. And hopefully we've got a long way to go. And the team believes that. And, and it's pretty much aligned with that. We have the same problems we have more or less than you know two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. They're just bigger. <laughs> hmm. so it's not, you know, we, we, I remember we thought at one point that when we went over 10 million orders a month, it'd be like, wow, we'll be a really consolidated company. And, you know, we've gone well past that now. <laughs> and I think my co-founder and Missy Oscar has done a really good job with that. Our values, right? 
they're, they're still there, the mm-hmm. same values we had at the beginning, being humble, not being perfect, gas, mm-hmm. caring, caring about our team, our ecosystem, our cities. I think so, some of these values are in the company. I think that we attract talent that are aligned with them. Yeah. You know, as I think about what you're trying to do, I think about my time in California. And I remember everybody was calling an Uber because they were the first mover. And then I remember going back, I don't know, a couple of years later, and people were all calling Lyft. And the big difference between why people were suddenly willing to download another app and call another company and not Uber was because of the drivers. They felt the drivers were more responsive and more respectful and more on time. And at least in the time that I was there, quite a few people being equally happy calling a Lyft over an Uber. And I don't know if that's a fair comparison at all, but I think the couriers that you talk about are really important part of that marketplace that you're creating. And I'm curious, what is it that Glovo is doing well or that has learned from maybe not doing well that's really going to keep those Glovers in the system? Because without them, if you constantly have a high turnover, I imagine that's not going to lead to a very good experience. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's an amazing, I think, business case study. I don't know the founders personally, but but we, we were following Lyft and Uber in the US. Yeah. And my understanding was Lyft was really struggling to get fundraising. They were a long way away from Uber. And that that changed. That was a game changer for them. Yeah. And, it, and it turned them into the likable company. Uber were also having other PR issues as well that, that sort of helped that. So there's a mix yeah. going on there. And they, yeah. and they turned themselves into a really good business and into Uber's market share. So I think there's a great story there. This stuff can't be vanilla. It has to be real. Obviously, the couriers is key. What we do as a company, the first, the most important metric and what they're interested in is how much income they're going to make per hour, right? It has to be good. So we work, there's an international company called Wage Indicator. And in every single country, they identify what is a decent earnings per hour in that region for, for, for a t- type of job. And we use that as a key metric within the organization to identify that we're over that on an average in, in every single city that we work. So that's super key for us. And it's in our business KPI. And we have the traffic like when we're green, when we're amber, and when we're red, and, and we know we need to change it the same way as you might have financial KPIs. And we make sure we're, we're on top of that. That's key. Mm-hmm. The second most important thing for our couriers is the amount of hours we can give them. So, right. so one thing is decent earnings, but also many of them want more hours than are available because obviously we're not offer and demand platform where there's a certain amount of orders we do in a city and we can't guarantee. But it's very important that we do the onboarding and we control how many new couriers come and we don't take hours away from the current ones to make sure they've got a decent amount of hours. What they mm. So those are two metrics that we're very on top of and are super important. And the third, we're doing a lot of stuff with further education which I think is very interesting. And in general, there's many very professional and actually really love the job and want to do it long-term and want to do it for years. And they're, they're really happy with income and they're maybe earning more or more flexible work than they, they would with a standard job. Or they're looking for flexibility. They want to connect when they want. And it, it's really useful for them to get those 15, 20 hours additional into their life. But there are a, a bunch who use it as a, a primary income, but, but it's not the job of their lives and they don't aspire to do that. And they're looking to do something else. We identify that we're a trampoline for them and we should be. So we're doing a lot of stuff with further education. We've got uh, G-learning courses where they can learn skills 
while they're working on our platform and having income, they can actually prove themselves. We've got certifications programs as well. So we're, in turn, we call it Glover Trampoline. And so the idea is for those that it isn't the job of their life and we're just a temporary solution for income, hopefully when they finish working with us, they're only a better position to get a better job. So I think that's really important. And then the other important side, apart from the couriers, and I mentioned it in the call, and it's very linked to Q-Commerce and also our food deliveries, is the digitalization of SMEs. They've been left behind in this transformation to internet, to e-commerce, to, to people ordering online. You know, they've been very dependent on people walking by and buying physically and proximity to the, to the customers. So we're allied with these pop and mom stores, these SMEs to actually compete in the digital world and with a better UX because we can deliver, they can deliver in 20 minutes with us, whereas the Amazons pretty much can deliver in 24, 48 hours, right? So we're actually giving them a, an opportunity to do that. And I think that's also something that is, is really important. Interesting. Do you think Amazon would get into this? Absolutely. I mean, their investment in delivery is not, it's not just simply as, a, as an investment. I think they're very interested in the last mile. I think they're moving closer and closer to the consumer. They're buying retail chains. Their Amazon Prime will deliver groceries, sometimes not in an hour, but, but certainly same day. That'll be definitely interesting to watch. Okay, look, you've talked a lot about things that you're doing to really make it sustainable for the unit economics to work. A lot of sound foundations or accomplishments that I hear coming from you, which is great. Tell me about mistakes that you've made that could really help other entrepreneurs. I don't know if it's a mistake. Maybe we didn't have enough capital to do it, but it probably wasn't a focus as well from myself and, and others, is building a, a bigger engineering team. We mm. had a very lean engineering team and our product and tech bottlenecks will probably never disappear. I mean, we can have 500 engineers today, but if we had 5,000, we'd still have bottlenecks. So many ideas and so many things to do that you're never going to mm. finish that. So I think we had a relatively small tech team and I would have built that out a lot quicker and bigger earlier. I think it's the most important asset in the company. And then also we made a mistake, but I think it was a great learning and, and really, and it was quite early on and, and we didn't kill the company doing it. We launched Latin America and, and Brazil per se is obviously the biggest mm. country in Latin America, but it's almost a continent itself. And we just went full in to Brazil without really doing enough research on what the competitors were doing, but A, what the mm. incumbent company, which is there's a great company in, in Brazil called iFood, which mm. has been there historically and has, you know, 90% plus of market share. But what we didn't look is they actually have an amazing user experience. So for us to eat into them, having the market leadership they have, having all the great restaurants, they're focused on, on just food. Um, for us just to come in there and just eat into the market share was a bit naive. And we invested very quickly. And it was a typical example of fail, fail quickly. I pretty much left the market within six months. We lost a lot of money. But we learned a lot from that experience. And I think that was a good learning point that we won't do that again. That's probably a, a good example of, you know, understand your market before you go in there. If you've got companies doing a great job there already and you don't really add that much value on top, then is this a market you want to go into? So I think that is an important learning that, that we have. Yeah. Are you open to US? Because US also has quite a few really strong competitors there, right? I mean, but it is a huge market as well. So what's your take there? I think the US is very crowded. Yeah. It's very competitive. Yeah. I think there's some great companies operating there already. I mean, you've got DoorDash and obviously Uber Eats as well, but you've also got Instagram. You've got some great companies there who are references and we're not the size mm. or the possibility of, of, of going to the US. So A, US, definitely not. Another 
key large markets probably either. You know, we're not looking going to the UK, which is a lot nearer to us or, mm. or okay. other big markets where we think it's A, very competitive. Generally, the competition is doing a good job. Yeah. And the, the size of investment we need to do that, we believe that investment is better spent on the markets where we're focused on. So it's also about a return on investment. Nice. I like that. Okay. Well, Sasha, we've come to the formal end of the podcast, but I have a rapid round that I love to ask my guests. And it usually starts with what's your favorite book? Something that you love reading. It can be personally to you or you as an entrepreneur. Any book that you... I'll say the one of the most recent ones I've read, No Rules, Rules, which is about Netflix and how the Netflix culture in the company. I think it's a good read. They give a lot of flexibility, as the title would say, no, no rules, rules. I think that's a good read. It's not, it's not for every company. I'm not saying that every, you know, this, I don't believe in this one way is the best. I think there's a lot of management styles and a lot of cultures that work. Global has its own, but, but that, that was a good reading, good learnings. And, and all our management team, by the way, so we gave it to them so they could also read it. What about productivity tool or productivity tip or hack? Something that makes you productive? Good one. We, so it's a pretty boring one because it becomes so big now. I think Slack, I think has been a game changer for many companies and certainly with us. We're a big fan. And it's probably also, it's a, it's a typical product that if we see it in 10 years, it's going to be massively different and have a million things added, but it's so useful, right? I find it very productive. It eliminates a lot of baggage of communication. I mean, if you, if you need to control yourself, right? So yeah. when you want to switch off from Slack, you switch off. I mean, you just have to have some auto control. Exactly. Just because it's there doesn't mean you have to. I think that's the more the person than, the, than a problem with the product. Exactly. What about a favorite city in Europe? I love Lisbon. I think it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I think it's got a, a very good culture. Um, it's got a good vibe, especially now. They're, sorry, but they're very tech-friendly as a, yeah. as a country, as a nation. They're really moving the dial. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of Lisbon. And I'll give you one that I'm absolutely not sure if Europe is certainly touching Europe. And or Asia, um, and probably those who live there are going to kill me for saying that. But an amazing city is Tbilisi. Yeah. And I recommend anyone who hasn't been, it's Georgia, it's a small country. Yeah. The worst thing about Georgia is there's only 3.5 million of them. Yeah. <laughs> My husband has been telling me we should go to Georgia. So tell me a little bit about Tbilisi. Why Tbilisi? Well, first of all, it's you get there and you don't expect it. This wow. I mean, hmm. they've got, I mean, first of all, their reference as a country, and this is sort of a tech podcast, so I will, is is Estonia. So mm. they, you know, they, they, they're trying to take all bureaucracy out of out of administration and everything. So literally, they've got a place in Tbilisi where you can just pretty much do any admin thing from getting married, divorce, paying your taxes. You can probably do that all in 30 minutes at the same time. So basically, mm-hmm. taking bureaucracy out, making it a digital-run yeah. state. Um, very pro-business. Pro and then architecturally... They have these old Soviet-type buildings, but they've turned them into modern, hmm. you know, type of things. So they've got this mix going on. Hmm. They invented wine. Don't yeah. need to say anymore. Uh, yeah. They claim to have invented wine. I actually believe it. So it's, it's... And I mean, they've even got something which I find absolutely cool is they have these homeless dogs yeah. in the street and they label them. So they, they, they vet them and everything. And then they let them loose in the streets, in the, on, the, on the sidewalks, and people feed them. Huh. And it's absolutely amazing. And they're, they're just part of the system. They're, they're super fine and they're just running around as they want. And, you know, all neighbors and, and shops and everything will always bring food out and drink for them and become friends. And they normally stay in the same neighborhood. But they're just out there and just, just part of 
part of everyday life. And I find that absolutely beautiful. Wow, that is so cool. I've never heard that. That's really interesting. Okay, and my last one is a favorite quote. It could be yours or it could be borrowed from someone else, but just something that you like. I think it's it's work hard, play hard. I think, you know, you need to work hard, but you need to enjoy A, your work and you need to, you know, live life to the full outside of work. That certainly in my team, I like to put it in. I think, you know, work and social are very important. You're, you know, what you do socially in your life and you need to do both intensely, I think, to get the most out of life. But that's just a personal one. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Sasha, for joining me on this podcast. Really, really interesting space and fantastic to see the growth and what you're doing. And I, for one, love the convenience of being able to get whatever I want at two in the morning and and know that there's somebody that can help me with it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.